Hello everyone, this is Yulia Strate. Today I'm hosting Mark Mortensen as part of the Making Remote Work series. How can we define modern teams? What makes them effective? How should we manage distributed teams? Can they be as productive as a collocated team? How can we best solve remote conflicts? Join Mark Mortensen and me as we connect research with practice and provide answers to these burning questions. Mark Mortensen is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD. He is co-directing the Emerging Leaders in a Digital Age program. His area of expertise is organizational collaboration, with an emphasis on two increasingly prevalent ways of organizing that do not fit traditional models of team dynamics, globally distributed and project-based work. Making Remote Work is a limited series led by the organizational design community and hosted by skills for mars It is a public service video podcast in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It will host over 20 researchers and practitioners in the field of distributed work. They will share their insights and knowledge to support companies and employees who are making this transition. If you do find these types of conversations useful, you can support the podcast by subscribing to it. To access the video podcast and subscribe for free to my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com forward slash skills for Mars and hit the subscribe button. Alternatively, you can go to www.skillsformars.com and click the YouTube confirm your subscription button. And now I give you Mark Mortensen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today, I'm hosting Mark Mortensen, who's an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD. Mark, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you so much for having me. Would you be okay to start by introducing yourself and your work, particularly as related to distributed work, remote work? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, so just two seconds about me. Um, I'm, I'm actually a recovering engineer, so I should be very honest about that. I used to be a computer scientist, so I love technology. Um, and that was really what got me into this space in the first place was trying to build technologies to help people to collaborate. Uh, the more time I spent doing that, the more I realized the real challenges, the interesting things were about the original equipment. It was about the psychology around the way people work together. And again, particularly when they have to work together over distance. Um, this is, uh, as, as by the gray in my beard, something I've been doing for a long time, um, you know, for about 20 years, I've been studying how people work together um, when they can't actually be in the same physical space. Uh, now, obviously, it incorporates a lot of different things. Some of it is just about being physically separated. Some of it is about the technology. Some of it is about working globally, cross-culturally, all these sorts of different things. Um, but that's what I, what I really focus my research on is uh, collaboration, but also new forms of collaboration. And a little bit more recently, more on also what happens when you're working on multiple different projects and being pulled, uh, stretched, and being feeling really overcommitted, uh, all of which is unfortunately part of what we're experiencing these days. So how are you seeing, by the way, of what we're experiencing these days? How are, what are you seeing? Uh, what kind of questions are you getting? How do you feel about the challenges, especially how they, I mean, we've, you've studied all of this in normal situations. This is not at all what not we call the usual work from home or remote work. Yeah. So what are you seeing out there? What are you hearing? So, I mean, there are kind of a couple of different things. On the, on the one hand, one thing that I'm seeing, obviously, is there are a whole lot of people who haven't been in this mode of working who are being thrust in. 
Um, and when we think about what's different now than the way things have been in the past, this is one of the big differentiators. It used to be opt-in and it used to be, I mean, I, I, uh, and I, I was explaining this to Yulia just a couple of minutes ago as we were getting warmed up. I said, look, I, I actually like working this way and I often work not just from home, but I work in coffee shops. I'm one of those nomadic workers that you see uh, when you're trying to get real coffee, I'm the one sitting there hogging space with my laptop. Now, I'm comfortable with that, but I made that choice to do it. One of the big things that we're seeing now is a lot of people who are being forced, they didn't want to work this way. They, for various reasons, it could be personal preference about work-life balance. It could be uh, what they need for, you know, they need a calm, quiet space and people talking distracts them. Uh, they need separation from, from what they're dealing with at home. So different from work-life balance, but also separation. That used to be a choice that people had. And so for most of the time that I've been studying remote work, it's been about saying, okay, if you're going to do it this way, and some organizations were mandating and pushing that we should do more, it was still more of a choice people were engaged in. If you're going to do it this way, what do you need to keep in mind? Now what we're seeing is suddenly all sorts of organizations are being shoved into this. They're being forced to do this, including people who really have been sort of pulled along kicking and screaming um, and really trying to resist this. So what I'm seeing the difference is, one, obviously, uh, there's this, this forcing mechanism. Two, scope. Uh, it used to be some people were working remotely, but then you also have a lot, of people, a lot of people who aren't. We just don't have that. I live in Paris. Everybody is working remotely, and we have been now for a while. And there's a lot of things we can talk about of what that entails, what that uh, generates in terms of tensions, family, and having to deal with everybody under one roof all of that. Um, so I think it's really, it's the, the lack of, of autonomy in the choice. It is the scope. And, and the last piece being, it's also the, the fact that we're not just talking about we're remote working now, we're also talking about remote life. Um, it used to be, I choose to work separate from everybody else, but I can still walk out the door and talk to my friends and go have a drink or uh, grab a coffee or, you know, socialize, go, go out for my team sport on the weekend. And now suddenly that's gone too. So all of a sudden remote is a very big piece that affects all different parts of people's lives. Yeah, definitely. And we are social beings. Uh, so it's kind of hard for everyone. And I see people yeah. who have been used to working remote and have done this for a long time. But right now they feel like they're trapped. Yep. They, they feel like they are, they are in jail. So, so the psychological effects of this crisis, they are way more important than just what it would mean to work normally remote. Yeah. And I would actually, I'll just add one thing on that because this is something that, that often comes up. In my experience, people often focus on the technology, right? If we're going to remote, uh, remote work, we're going to do this. The most important thing, got to get the technology. You have to have a super high-end webcam and a really cool microphone and you need to have all this dedicated equipment. And the focus tends to be on the technology because that's the easy thing to put your finger on. The reality is that by far, and this is in all the research I've done, I'm not studying and I'm not seeing big effects from the impact of a particular technology choice. The effect comes exactly as you said from the psychology. How are people dealing with it? How are people coping with it? And how do our brains deal with this transition? You have to remember that for millions of years of evolution, we've evolved around face-to-face -face interaction. The amount of time that we've actually been able to do a video conference remotely is the smallest infinitesimal fraction of human existence. We're not adapted for it. We're not used to it. And that's part of what makes it hard. And it, it does change people's behaviors when they are in front of a camera. 
I, I do this podcast close to every day and then uh, I can talk to you for uh, 15 minutes before the podcast. But when we start, the behavior changes completely. Absolutely. You're, no, I'm you just reminded me I should improve my posture a little bit, sit up straight, all these. No, but these are all things. Plus, there's also the added fun of we now get a picture into people's homes. Yeah. I'm cheating and using the, a blank wall. You have a nice bookcase. But all of a sudden now half the meeting is what's on her bookshelf. She's got some stuff. over. Oh, I think I know I have that book over there. So there's there's a whole additional thing in, that changes as well in the way in which we interact. Which is positive as well, because just seeing books and that maybe you connect with, then you know that, hey, maybe we have something in common. Yes, absolutely. So I that can, can add to the positive, uh, positive I have effects. a There we go. <laughs> uh, Mark, a lot of your work is related to teams and yes. teams' effectiveness. And I want to start by asking you, how do you define a team right now, whether it's distributed or not? Because looking at your work, you you are looking to define them in a different way that they have been defined until now, taking into consideration everything that, that has come into play in the last decade. So yeah. what is a team? What is not a team? And how does this affect distributed teams and how we look sure. at them? Um, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that because it's it's actually been a... A, a sticking point of mine is that people talk about teams and they use teams and they never actually define them, which means often we're talking about very different things. Now, that said, it's also tricky to define them a little bit. So academically speaking, right, a team is a group of interdependent individuals working towards a common goal. So what does that mean? We've got a, a set of people. We can, at least to a certain extent, identify who they are. Though actually some of my research shows we often have some disagreement within the team, right? You say it's these five, I say it's these five. Somebody else says it's, you know, we overlap on some, but not all. We have to think about that. Um, so we have a group of people, they're interdependent. So that means these are people who are meaningfully rely on one another to get something done, right? I need Julia to do something. I can't do my work unless she has contributed her piece and we go back and forth, whatever the form of the interdependence might be. Um, one of my, my favorite examples from uh, the late Richard Hackman, he used to talk about co-acting groups. Think of people at a bus stop. They have a common goal, and I should have started with that, right? There's a common goal we're trying to do. They have a common goal, but people at a bus stop don't have interdependence, right? When the bus pulls up, especially if it's raining, they're pushing people out of the way to get on the bus. So when we talk about teams, we mean people who do rely on one another in order to accomplish something, and they're all working towards that common end goal. Where this gets tricky when you're working remotely, A, is teams tend to start growing and they start accreting. The teams become very big because you, you don't have to fit people around one conference table, right? There's, there's a, the famous office. Amazon, yeah, the Amazon two, you know, pizza example. You don't have a team that's bigger, that, that's so big that two pizzas can't fill, uh, you know, feed everybody in the room. When teams become virtual, those boundaries kind of go away. Um, and you also, the interdependence becomes tricky because it's something you need to design in. So it's a little tricky to put your finger on exactly what it is. The main thing that I think people have to recognize is we're talking about people who really depend on one another. I mean, at, at a micro level. So when your CEO says, Hey, we're all one team here and gives you the big thumbs. No, you're not 2000 people, 10,000 people, a hundred thousand people. It's not a team. It's an organization. Within that, you have teams, and we're talking about those operating units that need to work together to get something done. So what makes a distributed team effective, and what would make them 
effective in the current situation. So going away a bit from the usual research, considering that some of the teams are just being built right now and they just start working remotely right now, what would help leaders, HR, to really make them work effectively together? Sure. So two different things. One, what in general makes teams effective? Well, the one thing I often push people, try to remind them of, don't forget the basics. So we often think we say, oh, we got to talk about virtual teams. Virtual teams are totally different. They're this new animal. There's got to be new rules and new criteria. That's not true, right? Remember, again, the original equipment, your psychology is still the same. What makes normal, traditional, boring, old teams effective, right? It's the setup conditions, the design conditions. Do you have agreement on a common goal? Do you have the right membership? Do you have the right, so the composition? Do you have well-structured roles in terms of what people are doing? Is the task well-designed? Then does the organization provide us the types of resources that we need? These are the basics, and none of those go away when you're working virtually. So the first thing people have to remember is don't forget about that and say, oh, I just want to focus in on the virtual stuff. The basics are still going to be the biggest driver. Now, what does virtual add? It kind of adds two things, or the way I would frame it is these things have always been important, but they used to come for free. And that's a sense of shared understanding and a shared uh, identity. Shared understanding is cognitive. It's do I know the things you know? I'm sitting here in Paris right now, so things I know, I know about my work, I know about that. I also know, for example, what the weather is like, and that affects our moods. I also know what my local context is like. I have three kids running up and down the hallway at times, so I know what distractions might be coming in. You don't necessarily know that, and that becomes a stumbling block. In the old days, the face-to-face team, that wasn't a problem because we were in the same space. We all knew what the weather was like. We all knew the physical space. Second piece is this idea of shared, under, uh, shared identity. Um, we have a huge history of research, not mine, long way back, on this sense of, of social grouping, um, social comparison. So we say, look, there's us and them. It's a natural process we use to make sense, simplify the world. We do social categorization. Now, the problem is, in a, in, in a traditional environment, when you have five people around a table, the answer is pretty clear. Who is us? the five, the four other people and me. In a virtual environment, suddenly we introduce new things, right? There's the people in the other location. Well, is the us and them us versus the outside world or is the us and them us here versus them in that office? And what if there's three different thems? What if there's three people here, one person, one person, and one person? Is it three against three when we group them all together? Is it three against one? And then three against one and three against one. Are we thinking in terms of against or are we saying we are all one collective? These are the big picture thing differences that we need to think about when we're going virtual. Shared understanding, shared identity, not because they weren't important, because now these are things that don't come for free. We have to put in the effort. And now, we have to, yeah. Definitely. I was just going to add the, the one other thing. What's different now in this flavor of virtual working Um, I would sort of argue there there are a few different things. One, leveling the playing field. We're now seeing a lot of people, as I said, thrust into working this way. And so if you haven't worked this way before, there's a power imbalance. And leaders, managers, teams have to really think about that. How do we manage that technologically and socially? There's the work structuring around virtual work. There are some best practices, mechanical things we can do. And then there's this, this aspect of really treating the whole person, especially now 
because it isn't just virtual work, it's virtual life that we're dealing with. We actually have to really spend a little bit more time thinking about our, our employees, our team members, and are we dealing with them in just the work piece or more broadly, or do we have a burden of care to think about the entire person? And I think that that's much more important, particularly in this, uh, this situation with COVID. Um, I was reading, and we will have a discussion as well with uh, GitLab and uh, yes. the former CEO of Envision as well with Mark Frain. And they do rely a lot on shared values when they mm -hmm. work in all remote distributed uh, teams and companies. Um, what do you think about that? Is it important to think of just goals and splitting tasks and responsibilities? How important is to take into account values, personality, uh, introverts, extroverts? I, I think it's critically important. Um, now, one of the challenges is, uh, that we face when we're dealing with all of these situations is, is there's sort of a triage factor. We have to think about where do we put our efforts in first, where do we put it in second? Um, when I was mentioning before, we have to get the basics right. Mm -hmm. That piece of the basics that are about, that's about that compelling direction, that isn't just do we all have the same thing on a piece of paper that says we must do X or we must do Y. It's also about do we all agree on what's important? So in that sense, that's exactly what we're talking about with respect to the values and tying those elements in. Similarly, personalities, what's really important is that you, most important is that you recognize the personalities that you have, the, the personal characteristics that people have. If you have somebody who is an introvert, every leader, every manager knows one of your tasks is how do I, basically how do I pull that person in? How do I you know, get them engaged in the, in the interaction? That's even harder to do when that interaction is over a video camera and when it's easy to feel a little bit more anonymous. Even if we know we're on camera, research is very clear. It shows that we, we eventually sort of forget. And we kind of, this is why you see all these videos of people taking their, you know, in a, in a Zoom conference and taking their laptop with them to the bathroom and forgetting. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, and turning it off. We tend to forget these things, which also means we forget that we're in the middle of a meeting and we need to be engaged. We need to be interactive. So that task of leaders in understanding their team, understanding what the, the skills are, the composition of the team, everything becomes even more important because you have to do a little bit extra work to pull that in. You don't get to rely on just the normal social dynamic. So would a good advice for maybe first-time leaders that are doing this is to just sit, take a moment, think about the team, think about who's in there, and then maybe have a shared uh, meeting in which you share all of this really openly and discuss from values to goals to responsibilities, how work gets done, and then you negotiate times and everything else. Would that be a good advice? Absolutely. It's one of the pieces of advice I give all the time. If there's one thing you do, even if you forget all the specific things, and there's been a massive glut of recommendations and people jumping on the bandwagon saying, hey, I've got the three tips you need to do to fix your virtual, you know, we're drowning in it right now. It's good because people are grasping for things, but we have to be able to separate what's in there. If there's only one thing you do, have a conversation. Very, very simple. It goes back to the old traditional things that help us to function, right? Go sit down, have a conversation. And the one thing I can encourage, try to be as open as possible. All of Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety is even more critical now. You're create, we are, we're in an environment where people feel fundamentally unsafe also because they're afraid for health and other factors. 
the more you can do to say, look, let's have an open conversation. We're going to lay our cards on the table, right? We also accept that there are going to be some breakdowns and some flaws, right? If my kids come breaking in the room, I've warned you about it. You know it's coming. And if it happens, we all say, hey, those of us who have kids know what it's like. Those of us who don't, we can probably understand and we can, we can come to grips with Accept it. it, yeah. Exactly. The more open you are, the easier it becomes. Another thing that maybe is not yet happening because most of the companies already said that, hey, we are going to postpone performance reviews and everything else, or even companies who said, hey, you're all going to get the outstanding or excellent performance this year. But it is possible that some companies will have to go through just giving feedback remotely. And it's hard because when you give positive feedback, it's down, down anyway, right? You has, you say excellent and it's perceived like, yeah, it's okay. But if you give negative feedback remotely, it's perceived as, as even more negative. So any thoughts on how leaders, especially this first time leaders who are doing this remotely can do this and something that would help them Keep their teams engaged, even even with the negative feedback. So you're 100% right. I mean, right now, everybody's saying, okay, we're just pushing through this and then things will be a little bit better afterwards. Um, I I think we have to be realistic. We don't know how long this situation is going to last and in what form. I think the the best course of action is, is having that honest discussion and saying, look, we're going to have to start doing things like performance reviews now. We can do them with with a little bit of heart and a little bit of soul, and say we're, we're we understand the challenges that people have, but we also at some point have to move ahead and say, look, we're, we there's only so much we can we can postpone. It's funny, I actually just this morning I I wrote a post uh, a few years back an HBR piece on coaching remotely, um, and I just this morning got a a note from a former student of mine who said, look, um, I you know I've read this piece and I read I'd read it in the past. Uh, but it's making me think, do, is, do we need an update for it? What's different in the COVID situation for how do you coach? And, and giving feedback performance reviews is obviously a piece of that. One of the things that he was pointing out, and I think he's 100% right, is there has to be more of an incorporation of the whole person. Again, recognizing the situation that people are in. So one, I think we need to do a little bit of recalibration. So as a leader, if you have a standard approach to the way in which you give feedback and the criteria that you're evaluating people on, one of the things you need to do is go back, revisit that and say, okay, where do I need to make a little bit of adjustment? And also realize uh, where the places in which there's going to be more heterogeneity in my set of employees. So I mentioned those who, right now, the situation with COVID means those who have uh, dependents at home, whether they are children, whether they are aging parents, whatever it might be, have a somewhat different experience, somewhat a very different experience than somebody who doesn't. So understanding that that doesn't mean you say oh you have kids you get you know everything congratulations you get an a on 100% on all of your evaluations but that you factor that in the second piece is i would really encourage you know that there's a round of of bidirectional feedback in there you need to give people the feeling that they they also have a voice in this process especially with what's going on so what i would also encourage people to do is don't just think about your, your usual you know, end-of-term performance review. You need some check-ins even more so along the way. Those don't have to be formal reviews, but those can be quick checks to say, okay, let's see how things are going. That also allows you to calibrate what you need to be talking about in the evaluation. When the evaluation comes, like I said, you need to do a little bit of fine-tuning and adjusting. That said, 
you need to also be, be, have some consistency. So this doesn't mean you throw away everything and say, okay, here are our new virtual work performance metrics. You can still look at productivity. You can still look at collaboration and how much do people collaborate. You can still look at individual development goals and all of that. All of those are, th- are still relevant. You just may need to adjust exactly what those thresholds are. Thank you. There's another um, issue, Mark, and I've seen a lot of leaders, and I think they're kind of new, uh, who are very, very proud online, sharing that they actually keep people on Zoom the whole day, right? So everyone is connected (laughs) with the camera on. Now, I know this is command and control. Usually it's a style of leadership that is really easy Mm -hmm. to get, right? It's first-time leaders. Uh, And then we know that you need to build trust, but it's not as easy as it seems, it's. I think it's just similar to making an omelet, right? Which is in 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 a chef's industry, this is the hardest thing to cook, or for a recruiter, the hardest thing to do is to to hire yeah. an an assistant. Getting trust is easy to talk about, but it's not so easy to understand. How do we get it, especially when you work at a distance? Is it by controlling what the person does every day? Is it what what should they do? Do you have any advice for those who? Are looking to build trust, but they have no idea how it can be built or how it can be how it can be given. So, uh, you've got there are two things that I want. So this is the problem. You talk to an academic. We have we want to talk about all sorts of different things, but um, so two different things. One, I, I want to come back to this trust point. There's just a quick point on the always on idea because I, I've seen the same sort of thing. Now, always on is not necessarily a problem if people become comfortable with this as a model. I can give you a very concrete example. Actually, back in my early days when I was in computer science, I had the, the incredible luck. I was an, uh, a summer intern at Xerox Park. Now, for the tech geeks in the world, Xerox Park is this crazy place where people sat around on beanbag chairs and thought up incredible things like mice, laser printing, Ethernet. I mean, you name it, it came out of Xerox Park. So I was there as a summer intern. One of the things they had, and this is back in 97, they had video cameras. They were working in the same building, but they had always on video cameras with a little heads up display so that you literally felt like you were in the same room as people because you could just look and all the, the regular staffers had this. They could turn it on or turn it off. It actually became a really easy way to sort of promote random interactions. You could be working and then say, hey, Yuli, what do you think about that? Okay, and then you go back to this and you could have really quick exchanges even if you weren't physically in the same location. Always on isn't bad. What's bad is if you force people and you say, you must be on all the time. Because unless people are comfortable with it, it's going to feel exactly as you said, like Big Brother is watching. We're, you know, we're watching you right there on the camera. I know what you're doing. And I can see, ah, you know, you're, you're not focused all the time. The other thing is to let go a little bit of this sense that, that you know, we have to make sure that the people working at home are actually working. If you ask yourself, realistically, when people are in an office, are they working every minute they're in the office? Anybody who's honest knows the answer is no. And that's okay. It's actually normal. You can't be working all the time. You need some time to be a little bit social. You need some time to form connections. You need some time to honestly let your brain turn off for a second, recharge, and then come back into things. So this is, there's this balance that we need to find in, in how much of the always on. But as you said, a big piece of this is about establishing trust. And I already mentioned Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, which is really, really critical here. 
The other thing that I want to remind people is one of the best sources of trust is predictability, right? We trust in things when we know what to expect. We've interacted with this person every time. I know that, for example, the always on video is never going to lead to someone saying, hey, I noticed that was a kind of long coffee break. You, I think you should have, uh, you should have had a ristretto, not a big lungo. Come on, work with us here. That's not going to help build trust, obviously. So if the repeated interaction is always, hey, you go off, you come back, we have a nice little conversation, that repetition is what builds trust in a situation. That also has a really important impact on things like when do you schedule your meetings when you're working virtually? Regularity builds trust. Don't just say we're going to have a meeting when something's on fire because then you know what? Every time somebody says there's a meeting, everyone goes, oh no, what's on fire? Who's, who did something wrong? Is it me? Did I do it? And they're, they're quickly checking everything. What you need instead is you need regularity. It gets a little boring, but you say, okay, every week we're going to have a check-in where everybody says, "Here, how am I doing? I'm doing this, this, this. What am I working on? Big challenges. Maybe, and some groups say, and every morning we do a speed check-in, speed round, one minute per person max, or two minutes per person max. So if we've got a 15-person team, we've got 30 minutes, everybody can afford 30 minutes just to know. And part of that is also to promote this informal interaction. That's also a source of trust, right? If I get two minutes, and one of the things I say is, I just can't get Zoom to work. It's not doing what I want it to do. There's a good chance someone else on the team will say, hey, hold on, I can help you with that. Why don't we jump offline? So regular check-ins, regular uh, meetings, and same thing with the performance evaluations, everything else we talked about. Regularity is your friend, especially when people are looking for things to hold on to in this era of COVID and anxiety. This really helps. Then could I also ask that being there on time when you schedule something would build trust? Because we tend to put, right, we work like lean, mean machines in real life and we tend to have meeting one meeting after another. And yep. sometimes, even if we're five minutes late, it feels like everyone in the organization understands it. And then we get to 10 minutes and 15 minutes and there's not even a debate, are you late or not? Because everyone in some organizations is just expected. Whereas online, it starts to trouble you. Hey, is this person coming? I'm with my camera on. Uh, my kids should be sleeping uh, 15 minutes more. So you get all of the environment that might not support you when, when you're not in the office. So being yes. there on time and walking the talk. So if you said something, I think it's crucially important. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And we, and again, we, we have the research to back it up. One of the things we know is when you're working at a distance, and again, I talked about this idea of, of grouping us versus them. When you have a them, you tend to make more dispositional attributions. So that means, look, if somebody is late, when I'm late, I know the reason. Well, you know what? My daughter was struggling with something about school, so I had to go talk to her, and that's why I was a couple minutes late. And that's a good, understandable excuse. Now, if I don't explain that to you, all you know is that I was 10 minutes late. What are you immediately going to assume? Probably sitting there having a coffee. He was uh, relaxing. He was enjoying some sunshine. He was, he was again on the phone with someone he else. He was on the phone again. He was, you know, sending, sending something on Instagram, right? So we tend to assume for the people who were in the other group, the, the them, we tend to go into it's about them and it's persistent. And this is we did, we did this work. I, I did this work with Gene Wilson and Brad Crisp that it, it's about construal level. How, do you see the forest or the trees when they do something wrong? It's them. It's not a situation. It's them and it's persistent, which means it once lazy, 
always lazy. Once late, always late. late. So you have to really be careful about the signals that you send. And we also have to work to try to be as understanding as we can, because look, this is not business as usual. Mark, at the beginning, you said something about people working in different teams, in -hmm. multiple geographies, multiple projects at the same time. Do we have anything for them to support them? Because they always feel like they're working just in time, moving from one project to another, not having any time, any kind of slack, anything that could help them work remotely better. So this is, and this is a a big challenge that we have, right? If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Typically, and this is, again, step back from the COVID situation for a minute. Typically, the people, when you ask who is it that is likely to be asked to work remotely, it's the people who have particular unique skills, unique expertise, right? Yulia is the only one who can run something like this, who has the insight to have this kind of an interview, drive it. So if we need to do interviews all around the world, she's the one person who can really drive that because she has the knowledge, the skills, et cetera. What that means is the people who work remotely are likely to then be pulled in lots of different directions because they have unique skills. They're not interchangeable. So this is one of the challenges that we have. And I did some work, um, I've done a lot of different uh, studies on this, looking at this idea of multiple team membership being pulled across. Um, uh, Anita Woolley and Michael Leary and I uh, really started, sort of launched a chunk of this, asking this question of, we have to think about teams in a fundamentally different way when we think across all of these different groups and, and how this works. And uh, Heidi Gardner and I had a, a, wrote an HBR article a little while back on the overcommitted organization where people feel like they're being pulled and we have to think about how do we help them. I would say the most important things, there, there's a lot out there um, and I'm not gonna bore everybody with going through the, the, the whole bullet list, but one thing that's important to keep in mind, you have to think at three different levels. You have to think at the level of the individual, the level of the team and the level of the organization. For individuals, the big challenges are about the load balancing, getting pulled backwards, forwards, sideways, um, there's some work that we've been doing, I've been doing with some colleagues uh, in Germany who've been looking at, we've been looking at people having sort of a home team um, and, and how do we move across this uh, and, and how do we think about the role that home team plays in helping me feel a little bit centered um, and a little bit more focused. This is a work with uh, Martin Hogel and Julia Bachmann, Julie Wimmer um, and Claudia Poiss. One of the things that we find is that home team plays a really important role. So part of this is about understanding, look, for For me as an individual, there are things I need that help me to cope. At the level of the team, part of the big challenge is how do I think about all the different teams that people are on and balancing? Do I actually know what they're doing on these other projects? And importantly, one of the real challenges there is it has to be at the level. This is one place where a team leader plays a really, really important role. Team members have a hard time going to their various bosses and saying, oh, no, um, they want more of me now, so can you please back off? That, that's a really hard thing. Cool. One of the roles team leaders needs to do is to step in and play sort of air traffic control. Hey, wait a second. This employee is getting pulled in too many different directions. That means you as a leader need to not only know who's in your teams, but what other teams those people are on. And maybe and what's the just, priority for the organization so you can prioritize absolutely. their work or coordinate their work in such a way that you don't disturb the organization. Absolutely. And there's a, a separate little wrinkle, which I'll just throw in there, um, which isn't a little wrinkle, but it's actually a really big one. One of the things that we're finding is there's also this idea of, of human capital interdependence. When you have one person who's on three different teams, one of the challenges that you run into 
is you now create a linkage between teams that may have nothing to do with one another's task or, or, or process, right? We, as, as organizations, we spend all this time mass, uh, uh, mapping out process interdependence, task interdependence, how do the pieces fit together so that we know where there are situations of risk. What we don't usually do is map out the teams themselves. This is done bottom up and we sort of staff people across. And what happens is we now have a risk where an exogenous shock, something comes in, something like COVID, that's a, a broad one, but it could be a, a product recall or something else. It hits a team very hard. And what do you do when your team gets hit, gets hit hard? All hands on deck, we need everybody. You pull in all the people who are working on different projects. Well, what are you doing? You're pulling them away from other projects. You create ripples through the organization. This is something we've been studying. Uh, we've got a, a team here at INSEAD that's been studying this uh, with Valeria Incerti, uh, Sujin Jang, Enver Yutesen, and uh, Yulia Mel, who's now at Erasmus. We've been really looking at this. We've been doing computer modeling to see how these ripples actually propagate through the organization and what organizations can do to design the map of their teams so that they're as resilient as possible, particularly in the face of shocks. Oh, that's like very COVID. interesting. Can uh, can anyone in, uh, uh, interested in this uh, read it anywhere or find it anywhere? It, it, is, it is very much work in progress. Okay. Um, some of these are, are under review. Um, if anybody is interested, please have them come come talk to me. To. Um, but we, we're looking also at getting some of these, these messages out because they are really, really timely. A few ending questions. Sure. You have studied distributed work in normal settings. You are now studying it in this ongoing natural experiment that is happening. Yep. How do you think about the future of distributed work? Where do you think this will lead us? Knowing what was there before, what's happening mm -hmm. now, what do you think will come next? I have to dust off the crystal ball and here's my, yeah. my view for the future. The problem is whenever you predict the future, now people have something that they can anchor you on. I think one of the things, it, for me, one of the biggest shifts that, um, actually two big shifts that I think we're going to see. As I mentioned before, we're seeing a wholesale move towards virtual work, far more in terms of scope than we've ever seen before. Part of what that's doing, um, and, and this is what I alluded to in the very, very beginning, is there are a whole bunch of people who have been resistant. Now, the resistance can be from a lot of different things. It can be, I, I'm making a conscious choice. Honestly, a little bit of is, uh, is being lazy. Um, you know, there are things that I could have done to be even more remote and even more virtual. It wasn't exactly worth it in, in my day to day. That's out the window. People are being forced to do it, which also means people are being pushed straight through the uncomfortable part of the learning curve. So one of the things I think we're going to see is we're going to see a whole lot of people who are more eager to work this way. Now, I think we're going to see an immediate blip as soon as all the restrictions go away. The first thing people are going to do is run in to say, oh, I can finally touch my coworkers and give, I mean, yeah, give them yeah, hugs. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I, I, this is great. And run away from home. Run away from home. Run, you know, like a family, I've seen you. Great. I love you. I'll be back in a week. Now I'm going to get and see the people that I've been missing in the office. So I think we're going to see, you know, obviously there'll be an immediate reaction. But once that dies down, there are going to be a lot of people who say, you know what? I used to think this virtual work thing was is kind of a neat little thing. There's some things that really buys me that I really value. So I think we're going to see greater requirements or greater demands by our employees to work in this way. Plus, I think we're going to see a lot of organizations who maybe were resisting it, saying, well, look, I can't trust my employees to do the work all the time, all the things we were talking about. Some of them are going to say, hey, you know what? It actually worked out pretty well. And maybe I can save on, on uh, physical space, physical plant, a lot of other things. 
So I think we're going to see an increase. Um, the other thing is, again, and one of the things I'm very interested in is this work-life blending and balance. This is a very, very difficult challenge and it has been for a long time. Uh, but it's going to come up even more. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Jen Patrick Gary, just wrote a book called Couples That Work that's about dual career couples. I know one of the things she's working on a lot right now is how do, for example, dual careers, career couples deal with being now thrust physically into the same space and you have to work here. Um, and so I think that there, there's a lot that we need to then further explore about this even more aggressive blurring of home and work. And let's be honest, we all know it right? Every one of us has one of these things that reminds us at various times, typically in the middle of the night, you're supposed to be doing this or not. And we, we check when we shouldn't be checking. That challenge is brought to the forefront even more than it ever has been in the past. And I, I think that's going to be something that we need to really look at and think about uh, because it has really big impacts on social dynamics, isolation um, and relationships uh, going forward. Do you have, did you think about already, because you, I think it's already a month that uh, uh, France is struggling with the crisis and with the pandemic. Yeah. Do you already have new um, areas of research that you want to focus on considering what's happening now and maybe theories that you want to retest and question because of what's happening? Yeah, there's, well... It's, there, there are theories that I want to retest, and there's also some repurposing of work that we've already been doing. Uh, Connie Hadley and I have been doing work for, for a little while now, thinking about the, these new forms of work, working, part of that is working remotely, part of that is also things like gig economy, uh, telework, all, you know, the various different flavors, but also this multiple team membership. And all, this brings into it things like Agile and Scrum, Holacracy, new forms of work. One of the things we've been looking at is the relationship between these new approaches to work and feelings of isolation and loneliness. Now, there's been a big, you know, and, and even before COVID, there was a big push to understand isolation and loneliness. Um, and there, I mean, there was there have been uh, articles, uh, HBR articles, and, and the likes talking about how this is one of the biggest medical risks of today's work environment that we have. Um, we've been looking at this as something that is being designed by some of the new ways of working. We say, look, we want to be agile to create autonomy and let people do this work as they want. And in fact, it might actually be having the opposite, that we're not empowering, we're disempowering. That obviously has been thrown a little bit for a loop because now all of a sudden everybody has to work this way. But I think that some of those core questions are becoming even more critical. And I'm seeing more and more and more people talking about feelings of isolation, feelings of loneliness. And it's an interesting paradox because we're forced to spend more time at home. So in one sense, we're actually closer. We're with our family. You know, as long as we have family at home, we are forced into more social connection. But I think people are also missing the other aspects, right? We have to remember that our social connections aren't uniplex. They're multiplex. They give us different things. Our family is a critical source of many of those. But there are certain things that your family may not be as equipped to give you if it's... Yeah, yeah stimulation from your professional identity, that sort of thing, you need to find ways to balance that. And I think that understanding that, the, this home life uh, balance, this is something I definitely want to push more on. And I really am interested in, in also thinking about these questions of virtuality and sustainability. What happens after COVID ends? Um, you know, hopefully, sooner rather than later, we uh, can move past this and we can look back on it and say, wow, that was rough, but we're in the new world. There are lessons that we can learn from this experience um, that are also not just about 
instantly moving virtual, but moving virtual in a way that is long-term sustainable and creates value. And this is something that I'm working on right now so that we can start thinking, you know, maybe it's optimistic, but start thinking beyond COVID to say, where do we go in the next steps so that we leverage the things that we have gained in this process by force um, to make something that is actually stronger going forward. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to it, Mark. Good, Did I forget to ask you something? Was there something that maybe you wanted to share and I just didn't ask the question? I think I've, I've probably said more than enough um, on, on all these topics. You know, I, my, my one call is, you know, if, if your listeners, if people have things that they're, that they're uh, wrestling with, particularly on these topics, drop me a line. Um, you know, there's, this is a crowdsourcing effort. We're all trying to understand this better. And the more data, the more information that, that we have to work with, uh, the better. And, uh, you know, we take a scientific approach. We're, we, you know, the things that I've been talking about now, these are the results of a lot of research that's gone in over time. So we need data, um, but we also need ideas and, and different perspectives. So, you know, that, that's my one request out there to the world. Please don't be shy. Don't hesitate. Uh, drop us a line and let us know if there are particular challenges, because that can help shape the agenda of the research going forward. Perfect. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and have a great day. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thanks. Take care.